Our good friends at Johnio welcome you to this episode. Now, the iconic Johnio clothing brand logo of the surfer and his longboard first caught my eye several years ago, but it's the signature Johnio style where West Coast meets East Coast prep that truly changed the game for me, and I've been wearing Johnio ever since. And now our listeners can use promo code RICHTAKE at checkout for 20% off your first order at johnny-o.com. That's 20% off the regular price. Price at johnny-o.com. Use the promo code RICHTAKE at checkout for 20% off your first order. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted built and inspired by the role of sports in their lives here's your host this is episode 129 thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen throughout history the art of storytelling has captivated generation after generation and Dave Gorin has had a passion for helping create stories in sports from his early days growing up in Boston. Dave now serves as the executive director of the National Sports Media Association, now headquartered in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. After spending 20 years as the sports director for NBC affiliate WXII in Winston-Salem. Before moving to North Carolina in 1988, Dave received a broadcast journalism degree from the Newhouse School of Communications at Syracuse University and would eventually move into a sports reporter and producer role in Providence, Rhode Island. You can also find Dave now in the classroom at Wake Forest as a sports broadcasting professor, helping prepare the next generation of sportscasters and sports reporters. And you can even find him on the sidelines as a sideline reporter for the Wake Forest football team through Wake Forest Learfield IMG Sports Network. Here's episode 129 with Dave Gorin. Dave, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy to do it. Yes, I know you're in the new building in terms Mm -hmm. of for the National Sports Media Association. How is that transition going? Making the move. That's a big move. Yeah, and we've moved a couple times since I've been with NSMA back when it was NSA, NSSA. In fact, my first month on the job, we were in a temporary office space. And then the second month, we moved into this renovated warehouse space in downtown Salisbury. And there were 300 boxes in the back, and I didn't know what was in any of them. So it was a gradual learning process for me. We were there for a few years. I moved on to the Catawba College campus. Uh, Two years ago, we moved here to Winston-Salem, and we were in the Center for Design Innovation. We're part of a flywheel co-working, which was in CDI, Center for Design Innovation, and then moved over here to 500 West 5th Street, which is an 18-story building in downtown Winston-Salem. It's exciting to be downtown because... Uh, in addition to having all the people here, I don't have to get in my car to go to lunch every day. So. <laughs> That's a key right well, there. <laughs> That's the only reason you chose this building, no, right? I mean, there are, yeah. uh, you know, two of our biggest supporters are tenants. One of them owns the building, and another is a tenant on the 12th floor. So it's good to have uh, your supporters nearby, and you, know, you can maybe run into each other a little more frequently. Why Winston-Salem, though, for the headquarters? Well, when we talked about moving a couple years ago, it's like we need to go to a place that's a little bigger, that has more opportunity to grow, and yet you don't want to be in a place that's so big you're going to get swallowed whole. And so we we discussed a couple different places, and Winston-Salem has a great sports vibe. There are a handful of colleges, including Wake Forest and Winston-Salem State. There's minor league baseball, there's minor league hockey, they're trying to start a national cycling center here, you have great golf courses in the area. Um, I'm leaving out some other stuff, you know, tennis, the Winston-Salem Open, which is an ATP 250 event, is here every summer. So there are great uh, great events. Um, Learfield IMG has one of its headquarters here, used to be, started as International Sports Properties and then became IMG College and now Learfield IMG. So they have studios a couple blocks away. So everything seemed to, to dovetail very nicely. Yeah, so it's a sports hub yeah, in this area, is. even though a lot of people, I don't think they would realize that. Yeah. and Because and, you know, it's not like a Charlotte. It's not right. like Atlanta or something. Yeah, Charlotte's an hour and a half away. Atlanta's a five-hour drive. Greensboro's a half hour. 
you know, Raleigh Durham, Chapel Hill, the triangle is an hour and a half to an hour 45 away. So everything is within easy driving distance. Now, obviously sports being the, the hub of everything, it's the national <laughs> sports media. Mm-hmm. What about you though? When did sports become the hub for you? Oh, from an early age. I mean, I loved it. Probably like how early? I mean, what was your first Probably six or seven. And, and I think it, it started because I, I got into reading the newspaper as a, as a child and the sports section just held, I mean, there was something about scores that was, that was fascinating to me. Um, went to my first, first Major League Baseball game, seven years old. First NBA game, day after Christmas, seven years old. Uh, first National Hockey League game, eight years old. First NFL game, probably 10. And, you know, I grew up about an hour southwest of Boston. Yeah, so you were um, in a sports town. In just a sports town. In general. And, and mostly pro sports. And it's almost flipped on its head where it's more college sports than pro sports now. So uh, I still have uh, on my phone pictures from, and I have them at home, my first program from my first Boston Bruins Detroit Red Wings game. So I saw Bobby Orr against Gordy Howe, my first NHL game. Uh, Boston Celtics, San Francisco Warriors, day after Christmas 67. Um, I don't have my first program. It was Tigers-Red Sox at Fenway in 1967, which uh, was the year the Red Sox went from 10th place the year before to winning the American League pennant. And I think a bunch of those events, you know, the Celtics were still good winning championships when I was in my wonder years, you know, (laughs) 7 to 12 or whatever. Uh, The Bruins won their first Stanley Cup in 30 years was Mother's Day 1970, I just turned 10. Uh, and the Red Sox won the pennant when I was seven. So those, and then listening to the announcers of those teams and watching the, the games, I became interested in, in how they did what they did. Yeah, now you have a knack for remembering all this stuff because I can't remember almost like if I washed my hair the other day well, <laughs> when I'm in the shower. I, I would say my long-term <laughs> memory is probably better than my short term. In fact, I was a little surprised when you asked me what I had for breakfast <laughs> earlier that I remembered. So, um, it's amazing the details you can remember from 50 years ago. Are you a guy that can remember stats like that and pull up? I used to be. I don't know that I'm as good now. In fact, I, I would honestly tell you that I probably knew more about sports and stats and all those things as a high school senior than I did after 24 years in TV sports where you're getting paid to know that stuff. I mean, I think yeah, well, it's your job. You should know it. Well, right? I, yeah, well, you know, part of it is when when you you know you grow up, you get married, you have kids. You can't spend a hundred percent of your time focused on sports. So That's right. That was my rationalization, anyway. Yeah, it gets to a point where, like, what I say, my hard drive it's full. Right. I mean, I can't retrieve. There's only so much data that can go in. Something's got to come out. And unfortunately for me, some of the sports memories that I have now, I remember them, but. Pulling the exact statistics and right. dates, that's where I'm a little foggy, mm-hmm. you know, from that perspective. But I was the same way in high school, especially basketball. I mean, I can remember stats. Now, fantasy, that can play a big part of remembering stats because I ran a fantasy uh, basketball league. I've never been involved in any fantasy sport. Never? Never. Why not? Just uh, my, my stock line is if it's something to do with fantasy, it has nothing to do with sports <laughs> for me. But it is, it is reality, <clears> though. It is. Um, just never interested me. I, I don't have the time to well, focus on that. It is a time sucker. I would agree with that. That it does take a lot of time. I'm happy with you know, reading anti-social screeds on social media. That's what <laughs> takes my time. How much time do you spend on social media? A lot. I mean, I have typically even at work, I have Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn up on my desktop. Because we have to constantly yes. put the word out because not everybody knows who the National Sports Media Association is. And that's a, that's a big big hill to climb. That to, is. To get exposure and to, to get the word out about who you are and what you do. Did you embrace social media Absolutely. Initially? I was, even when I was in TV, it's like anytime a, a new piece of hardware or software came in, I would be the first one to learn it. Um, I don't know if it was something I should have hung my hat on, but as the weekend sports guy, you were always the fastest editor in the shop because you had to be. I mean, highlights didn't really start coming in until 5 o'clock, and you were on at 6.20. And I always liked, at least when I first got in, like show a lot of highlights because that's what people, in my opinion, tuned in to see. 
well, you better learn how to edit 12, 30 second highlight pieces in an hour and then write it. So, and I, I think anything that can help you become more efficient is great. I, mean, I remember when nonlinear editing, computer editing came in and everyone's like, oh, it's going to be such a drag. And, and I remember we had, it was the week of the, it's now the Wyndham Championship PGA Tour event in Greensboro. It's the Greater Greensboro Open or some semblance of that. And it was the Monday night of tournament week and we stayed probably a little too long. There might have been a, you know, pairs party or dinner or something. <laughs> well, I had shot a, a feature on Tim Clark, the PGA golfer who went to NC State. And I did not sit down to start editing that piece until 11.06. It was done by 11.11. I mean, in five minutes, I was able to put, you know, the whole audio track and then fill in with the B-roll. Now, was it going to win an Emmy? Probably not, but it got done but it in got time out there. And, and it made the air. So that showed me what nonlinear editing could do. And then as I got more comfortable with it, I got into keyframing. So adjusting audio one sixtieth of a second at a time just to get that exactly right. Um, and just all the different effects, which you don't want it to be effect-driven because you're telling a story and that can sometimes get in the way of a story. But anything that can enhance the storytelling, bring it on. Why do you think storytelling is so important with sports? Well, it's, you know, no matter what realm it's in, it's the history of us. And, you know, sports, you know, I, w I was always a news hound, and I kind of looked at it that sports was my beat. I mean, I'll still sit up and watch, you know, politics on the couch for hours on end, um, but sports to me was fun. And, well, you can earn a living at it, too. That's pretty cool. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's a half a trillion dollar business in this country, if not more by now. Um, and it's something that connects people and connects communities, and that appeals to me. I think that's the big part that I see with sports. Right. It's just, I feel it's the ultimate connector. Mm -hmm. Brings people together. I mean, you know, I look back at my career and I say, would I have gone to this side of town if not for sports? Probably not. I mean, that, it's it's nothing that I say. Well, I'm proud because I I have a diverse group of friends and I, a diverse group of, <laughs> group of interests. Would I have been that way if my job hadn't forced me to do that? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Um, but what you you learn from that, and you know that's something that I'm, I'm happy to have accomplished in in my years on Earth is that I think I'm pretty well rounded and diverse group of interests and you know I'm not afraid to go to a different side of town because the people might look different than me because you realize that we're all the same in in most cases and I have found that people are afraid of what they don't know so you learn it's all about learning what if you talk to people you learn what they're about I'd say most of us are the same despite our Political differences these days. <laughs> and even just your socioeconomic oh, level absolutely. as well. And that's what I, I feel like with this podcast, a lot of times that people get to hear another side of some of these personalities right. that they see and think that their life is one way. But in all reality, it's not. Right. They're going through the same struggles that everybody else goes through. Exactly. Or the ups as well. You know, I mean, it's, it's all the same type of scenario. When was it then that you felt that sports was going to be your beat, that you wanted to make a career out of it? Probably early in high school. I, mean, I started, actually I remember before that, I think as a holiday gift, I got a little mini printing press and it had the little rubber letters that were backwards. So you try to look at it and say, I have no idea what letter that is. <laughs> and it had an ink pad and you know it took an hour to basically set type for one sentence. And then you cranked it, and it's like it printed out a set. It's like, how cool is that? It's like, I can write sports stories. I remember in sixth grade, I would rewrite newspaper sports stories, which took forever to handwrite them, um, and read them in class. And it's like, oh, this is kind of fun. Uh, and then I was the editor of my eighth grade newspaper, just regular editor. It was a brand new school. And um, my claim to fame there was I got I named the newspaper. It's like how many people get to do that? That's pretty cool. What was the name of it? Uh, it was I'll, I'll quiz you. The 
the name of the school was Martin Middle School. So it was the Martin, think alliteration, think I'm trying newspaper to. informing. It's the Martin Messenger. Martin Messenger. Okay, I'm drawing a blank there. Yes, you put me on the spot. <laughs> like saying, you know, a daily quiz. That was here. still when we had mimeograph machines. So we still, you know, we type them on a mimeograph sheet and then run it on the mimeograph machine. And then uh, sports editor of my high school newspaper. But I started writing for my local paper in a city of fifty thousand. My I was a fifteen-year-old high school junior and started covering high school sports. And for some reason, I, I just knew in high school that as much as I love newspapers, that all the money was in TV, and that's what I was going to go into. And got into radio in college and you know, still wrote for my local newspaper when I was home on breaks and in the summer. Um, but I wanted to do TV. As much as radio play-by-play appealed to me, because I did it starting in college. First time I ever got on an airplane was to go do, I went to Syracuse, and I went to do a Syracuse two-game basketball trip to what was then the University of Detroit and Illinois State. Finals week, and I was the only one who went because no one else no could, one could go to the finals. I was like, finals, finals. I'm going to do a two-game Syracuse basketball road trip. And you know, that to me, that was a blast. So I liked both, and I applied to, I want to say, 225 TV stations and about 80 major market radio stations because I thought, you know, I was the man, and I could easily work easily. in New York. That's right. And you know, was quickly humbled after sending out all those cover letters, and um, and then it took me a while to get a, a job in TV. I substitute taught for four years while still writing for the newspaper. Got into radio. Now, um, is this still up north or in Massachusetts? Oh no, I was still in Massachusetts, still living at home after graduation, and after about three years, I was working at a radio station in Brockton, Massachusetts, and we were doing high school football and magazine shows and scoreboard shows, which was, was great training to do a little bit of everything. And then one day, you know, you know, 25 years old, I'm still living at home. I need to you know, <laughs> do something. And so I got myself a season press pass to Providence College Basketball. And while I was there one night, I went up to the sports director at the NBC affiliate in Providence. I said, look, I want to get into TV. I've done internships. I think I know my way around a TV station. I'll work for free. Do you guys have anything? And he said, here's the number. Call the weekend guy. I think he needs help. So I called the weekend guy, and he's like, great. When can you start? Because it's free help. That's right. And I had interned while I was in college, so I knew what I was doing. And you know, as I tell kids now, go and show what you can do and work your behind off and don't ask for anything and volunteer to do everything. And I put in 1,100 hours for free over nine months. And he went to bat for me with the news director and said, can we hire Dave as our number three sports guy? So that's how I started as a $5.45 an hour associate producer in sports at the Big NBC time. station in Providence. <laughs> and then when that weekend guy got a job in Boston, he vouched for me with the sports director there. So anytime there were any of their sports producers were either out sick or on vacation, I could get a per diem sports producer job in the sixth largest market in the country. And so I produced a bunch of shows, and so I got my experience in Providence and gradually worked on air to do reporting and live shots. They would not let me anchor, and I just wanted to anchor to have the experience of having done it, um, but they wouldn't let me do it. So I sent, at that time, tapes all over the place, and one of them I sent to the NBC affiliate in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I had never really been out of the Northeast at all and heard nothing for four months. And on this blazing hot day, I finally moved out of my parents' house. I was living with Mike Stanton, who was the Providence College basketball beat writer and Brown University football beat writer for the Providence Journal, who, I, who was a couple of years ahead of me at Syracuse, but I had known him. And I was living with him and blazing hot day. And I remember the phone ringing and Hi, Dave. This is the news director at the NBC affiliate in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. You sent a tape applying for our sports director job. I didn't feel you are ready for that, but I have a number three sports opening. Would you be interested in that? And I said, absolutely. He said, send me another tape. And so I did, and he didn't really like the tape, but he liked the fact that once I got that call, I called the guy who got the sports director job, and I said, what do you guys cover? You know, What kind of tools do you have? How much time do you get for sports? I guess he liked the initiative that I yeah, took. You're doing some homework. Right. And so he flew me down here, offered me a job on the way back to the airport that day. And so I was 28 years old, finally. 
got a full-time job seven years out of college in TV. Started as a number three guy. The number two guy left within eight months. I moved up. I, I was the weekend guy for 12 years. And then my last seven, I was the Monday through Friday guy. And when... Uh, and got to anchoring. Finally got to anchor. I mean, I started anchoring. They started throwing me you know, a couple fill-in jobs when I was the number three guy. And then when I was the weekend guy, I was anchoring weekends. And that's when, you know, so busy and you're editing all those tapes and um, and getting to do it. So that's how was I was it everything you thought it was going to be? Yeah. I mean, I, I look, you know, if you told me now you have the choice for the same money to be a reporter and anchor, I'll take a reporter every day. Why is that? Because you're going out and telling a different story every day and meeting new people every day. And to me, that's a blast. And to me, putting putting your words, other people's words, pictures and sound together in a TV story is still the coolest thing. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. And to do it creatively and make it a good story. What's the hardest part about putting a story together? Uh, logging the interviews. I mean, it's tedious. You have to go back and listen and you know, write time, cue, time codes down so you know where those sound bites are. And, and my, the way I went about it was give me the best three or four sound bites from the person or people I'm interviewing, and then you, we, I weave my story around that. And... You know, then and do a reporter stand up where you're not looking stupid. And hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you hopefully you are bridging between sound bites or ideas or something. Um, but that was good. I mean, a, a well told story would give plenty of satisfaction. And then, uh, so I'm, I'm. Were there times where you're struggling though to get a story put together in terms of like what's the overall theme and you know how you want to weave that story into whatever message. Right. Yeah, I think there were, you know, depending on, you know, part of it was on you to ask good questions, but, you know, there's no guarantee you're going to elicit a good response. I mean, you know, and that might be somebody who's not so well-spoken and you still have to get something on the air. And those are the days where it's like, oh, you know, so then it became incumbent upon me to, you know, either write creatively, do a creative stand-up. Hopefully, you know, your communication with your photographer was good enough where he got you some good shots and, you know, we call that, if you didn't have the good shots, that's B-roll challenge. <laughs> and it had to all be on you. Um, but sometimes you could make a decent story out of, you know, good video and good audio. And that's something a lot of people didn't pay attention to was, there's a good natural sound out there. I mean, if it's a golf story, the thwack of the club hitting the ball or, you know, rattling in the cup. And use that. I mean, it's a couple, maybe a fraction of a second here or there, but I think it adds. To oh, the some of those little details—they add up significantly. Yeah, and they and, do. And when you start, you probably aren't thinking of that very much. It's like, how am I going to get my story done? But as you, you know, get experience and you grow older and hopefully wiser, then you start looking for those things, and that's where it can become really cool. Yeah. Who are some of the guys that you looked up to in terms of you wanted to emulate? You know, I think I was probably an amalgam of a lot of people. I mean, there are a lot of people who are really good at what they did. Um, I was like the play-by-play guys and some of the anchor, you know, and Al Michaels and a Bob Costas, uh, Jim Nance, and, and they all have different attributes. A Marv Albert when I was younger and today. Um, and then maybe more on the storytelling side, a Jim Huber who started in print and then at CNN was just so good. Him. You know, Tom yes. Rinaldi now. Um, and now there are so many, you know, there are so many outlets that there, are, there's so much great stuff out there now. You can't watch it all. That's the sad part. I know. So there's a lot of content out there. Right. Yeah. It really is. I mean, I'll, you know, we talked about social media. That's how I get most of my content because somebody will have linked a story, and then down the rabbit hole I go. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. I mean, I, and then I can share it on our our website and you know on our on our social pages. So. What were some of the most memorable stories that you put together? Um, I, I remember one, and I, I, found, I found it. Um, one of my former photographers brought me four of my feature tapes a few months ago, and I had them dubbed over to digital, so now I have it. Um, I did one. It was actually a follow-up on a young hockey player in Greensboro. He was 10, I think, when we did the follow-up, who had a glioblastoma, which is in most cases deadly um, tumor, um, had it, I don't know if he had it removed or shrunken, and the father telling the story about, you know, it was holiday time, and it, 
Thanksgiving. It's like if you believe in miracles, now is the time to ask for one. And you know, when the doctor came in and said he's he's cured, he's cancer free, and and you know, the father being very emotional, telling the story. I mean, emotion is what you remember. As much as I love covering Final Fours and national championship games and Stanley Cup playoffs. Those are the stories that really, I mean, you remember the events, but those are the stories you remember telling. Um, those personal connections yeah, absolutely. those stories. As a high school football player at Mount Tabor High School here who, I believe it was the day of, I don't know if it was the last regular season game or playoff game, got in a wreck driving home on slippery roads and was paralyzed in a wheelchair. And we did a you know, little interview with him going around the track around the football stadium. And, and I just remember some of the shots. And... You know, gave great answers, and that between that and great video that my photographer shot was a really good story. And why make the transition to be the executive director of the well, NSMA? When the economy went bad in 2008, there were maybe 40 TV stations in the country that said to their main sports anchors, we need to cut our sports department, and you make more than the other people, so see you later. Um, Reduction in forces. Yeah. And, you know, people, oh, you, has to be, you must be really mad about it. It's like, well, you know, I don't like leaving, but it's a reality of the business world. And I didn't take it personally because it, I wasn't the only one, and there were people who were in worse situations than I was. Um, two months after that, I, mean, I was told I anchored Thanksgiving night, 2008, had the next six days off, and my boss asked me to come in on the fifth of those days off to meet with the general manager, and that was the message. So, I mean, I was fortunate I'd been there for 20 years, and the, the package I got lasted for the time I was out of work. Two months later, I get a, a letter in the mail, congratulations, you've been elected North Carolina Sportscaster of the Year. <laughs> With the National Sportscasters and Sports Writers Association. So as my wife said, sure, all these people get to fly across the country to this big thing. We get to drive 45 minutes to Salisbury. <laughs> While I was there for the awards weekend, the local board president on the middle day said, why don't you apply for our executive director job? It's open. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not sure what I want to do when I grow up yet. <laughs> He's like, i got to figure this out. <laughs> I'm in the same boat right now. <laughs> I was 48 years old at the time. And I said, you know, it's a way to stay involved in sports and sports media. And so I interviewed, got called back as a finalist, and got hired September 1st of 2009. That same week, I had, well, I had, I had done my last four years of TV. I had done half of Wake Forest's pregame show for home football games. And I was asked if I wanted to be the sideline reporter for all the games. And I said, well, let me get permission from my new board. And they said yes. So did that. This, I started that the same week I started with this organization. So. And so you're balancing both of them then? Yeah. And then, you know, started... You know, running the Atlantic Coast Sports Media Association, and then teaching a class at Wake Forest, or first at High Point five years ago, and now for the last three falls at Wake. And I use all of them to, to help this organization and, and this organization to help them. Do you miss it? The side of you know, being the sports reporter? Putting together stories I miss yeah. sometimes. I, I, liked, I liked NCAA basketball time because that got us a little bit of travel, and then we would be in places where you would meet people who did what we did, whether it was TV, radio, newspaper. And there, you know, there are people, it's like, oh my God, I get to meet so-and-so, and then in the media hospitality room, I actually get to talk to them. <laughs> and, and, and then I realized when I took this job that that's what our awards weekend is. I mean, we get to meet people from all over the country who do what we do, compare notes, tell stories, um, you know, how do we improve? What do you do that I can do? And um, and I love that part of this. What's been the biggest advancement in reporting? Not necessarily just in sports, but obviously we can talk about sports. But you know, is it you know the computer? Is it social media? Technology. Maybe technology. Yeah, I think you put it all in that technology bag. You know, once upon a time we used to we used to have to go to the library and get books to research things, or you know, encyclopedia or now it's the Google Google, machine. that's right. So, um, you know, that has enabled us to tell more stories. And then with the, um, the proliferation of the 600-channel cable dish um, over-the-top universe, now there are so many outlets 
podcasting. Yes. So many outlets to tell stories that you know people who once thought I can never get into this business. You know, my younger son when he was ten years old did a sports talk show on his laptop. Ten years old, so you can do it, right? Right. He was he was upset because no one called in. But, you know, that's <laughs> the marketing side he had no clue about. That's so, a whole different animal, right, right yeah, there. That's exactly right. You just got to get so, the content out, and then you can work on the marketing side yeah, later. So part of me, and I, I very rarely regret things, but that I wasn't born twenty or thirty years later, where I could have started as the because you know, I was interested in, in it at seven and eight years old. I could have been the eight-year-old sports talk show kid. And is that why you went to Syracuse, though? Because Syracuse has such a great reputation. Yeah, I, st- I started with a list. I think my the list I started with was maybe fifty-two schools, and you know, fifty-two. Yeah, and and uh, I didn't apply to all of them. But that was that was that was where I started. And then you narrowed it down. And then I narrowed it down, and I visited University of Massachusetts as my safety school, <laughs> Ithaca College, and Syracuse, which are an hour away from each other, both with fantastic um, media schools, and. That was a tough choice because I got into all three, and Ithaca actually had, I'm sorry, Syracuse, I had financial aid. Ithaca had none, but I was one of 35 out of over 600 applications to get in, which was, I mean, to me, that was pretty prestigious. Yes. And I thought, Syracuse, bigger school, although not huge. A lot of people think it's a this huge school, and it's not. Yeah, it seems like it because all you ever see is the carrier dome. Right. <laughs> um, but I love the feel of the campus. I, lo- I actually love both campuses. I mean, Ithaca has the gorges um, and Cornell right there as well. But it's kind of isolated. Syracuse is a little bit bigger of a city. And I think more opportunity to do things extracurricularly. So, you know, great student radio station. Now they have like three of them on campus. You know, one of the first student newspapers in the country. So everything was there. And you know, great pizza place that I worked at in the last two and a half years. That was, <laughs> it was like being at a party every night. But you're dealing with the public and getting you know getting a little bit of that, which is good for this business. Exactly. I mean, the, you probably didn't even think of you were doing training right. at that time. It's relationships, dealing with people, dealing with the public, finding out the customer's always right. <laughs> Even when you know they're not. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And yeah, we always hear that adage, yeah. right? So, What about your role as a sideline reporter? I mean, how challenging can that be and how rewarding? Because um, um, some people think that, oh, it looks so easy. But I don't think what, it's that easy. Well, it's, it's funny because when you're in TV news or TV sports, you know, you are objective about everything and everything's right down the middle. And depending on where you are, I think people are... You know, lean toward your geography. You know, when your home teams are doing well, I mean, I think it's a natural. When you're working basically for the team, and it's not like we don't ever criticize because we'll we'll say that you know, Richmond will tell you he should have had that one. If he had that one, you know, if, if he had that one back, he would have made the catch. Um, you know, hit him right in the hands. You know, we say what happened. Yes. Um, by the same token, I think you feel you get to know the players. And you feel good when they win. I mean, that's you know, we had a couple challenging. I've been there for a couple challenging three and nine seasons where it's not a whole lot of fun. Uh, but you're there to tell a story, to you know, be the eyes on the field for what the guys upstairs can't see. Uh, you develop good relationships with the athletic training and medical staffs because that's a big part of your job. And then, having taught the last three years at Wake, I've had several of the players in my class, so you get to see them in a different light, which is cool. Um, and, and then, you, I mean, you're definitely rooting for them because they're your guys. You know, coach can be difficult because you're a speed bump. <laughs> you're a speed bump on the way to the locker room. I think that's the most difficult part yeah. of it, it seems. Um, you know, I mean, to draw something out of them. Well, you know, Dave Clawson's really good because he's such a smart guy. But he's going to say what he's going to say regardless. I mean, my first year, I was, I was getting a little frustrated because I would say one thing, and he would say, yeah, but the other. You know, your offense looked really good. Yeah, but our defense is killing us. Um, and, and I learned fairly early that first season, I don't ask a question first. I say, your thoughts on the first half. And let him go and then ask a follow-up. Um, as after, you know, you've, like you said, you've learned he's going to go his own exactly. agenda, and then you can just expand right. off of his agenda. Absolutely. And then, you know, I, I tell my students, A, you learn it's not about you, and B, you better have a thick skin. 
and, and it's you know even when they're winning, he can, you know because as a coach, his job is to get the best out of his team and put them in a position to win. Well, if they're up by four touchdowns at halftime, there's still another half to play, <laughs> and we've all seen teams come back. Yes, and he said, yeah, but there's still third, you know. And, and now I know all that stuff, so you you don't ask. I said, you know, what are you what are you going to tell them at halftime? What are you looking for in the second half? Um, and, and ask open ended. How would, your, how would you characterize your team's performance rather than you know, making assumptions? Because those will typically get shot right back at you. But being you know, two years ago, they were down by 17 points at halftime at Syracuse and came back and scored 40 points in the second half and won the game. Great, Probably the greatest comeback they've had. Um, usually on the road, my postgame setup is in the locker room, which when they – when they lose is the most uncomfortable thing ever. Talk about a challenge. But that day was one of the coolest things. I mean, that was the best locker room I've been in since the Carolina Hurricanes won the Stanley Cup in 06. Well, that had to be oh, a fantastic was, experience in itself. That was a highlight for me because I had played 15 years of lowest level men's rec league hockey here. <laughs> and, and had grown up around it. And hockey is my favorite sport, if you were to ask me, because it's the most fun to play and watch. My personal feeling. I do but enjoy watching it live. But playing it, that's a whole other animal. Yes. I'm not and, a good and skater. I, <laughs> and, and, and I wasn't really good either. And I was old by the time. I, I, mean, I was 39 when I started playing here. So, anyway. Yeah, um, I'm too scared of injuries now. Well, you know, I, I usually had to go back and do the 11 o'clock sports after I played. So, I would, you know, full face guard and a mouth guard. Just, <laughs> and, and avoid contact at all. Yes. You know, it was... It was Non-contact, which is not to say is non-collision, um, you know, it just is a collision sport. So anyway, uh, that was an Olympic year, the year they won the Stanley Cup. And working at an NBC station, our management wanted our talent to show a Winter Olympic sport. Well, they knew I played hockey, so I got on the ice with the Carolina Hurricanes one day after practice with their Olympians. So I'm standing there, and I get dressed, and. I'm watching them practice, and even someone who's been around hockey all his life, the speed at which they practice is unfathomable. Had to be insane. And I started getting a little apprehensive because the last thing in the world these guys are all going to want to do after busting their asses for an hour and a half is entertain some, at that point, 45-year-old TV sports guy who thinks he can play <laughs> hockey. They could not have been nicer, played along. It was uh, We mic'd up Brett Hedekin. Um, Martin Gerber was the goalie. Frankie Caberlet, defenseman. So Gerber was Swiss. Hedekin, U.S. Um, Eric Stahl, U.S. And then, am I forgetting? Frankie Caberlet was Slovakia, I believe. So I was, you know, I did a few rushes in from center ice trying to beat Gerber. And then I stood by the side of the net and was getting fed passes. I, I beat him once he hit the post. So I, I didn't get to celebrate. Ah, you didn't get to score. But Hedekin was good because he had the mic on. He was, you know. Performing critique while was he, he was yeah, doing it. Doing and, a and, play play. and it was a lot of fun. So anyway, so fast forward four months, they won the Stanley Cup, Game 7. In the dressing room, there were 300 people in there. You know, family, friends are drinking out of the Stanley Cup. And I saw one of the neatest moments, which I wish my photographer had seen. Not that it, not that you would have been able to hear it. Now, I just happened to be standing there. But Brett Hedekin, who we had mic'd up, sitting at his locker. And his fellow defenseman, Mike Commodore, comes in. And sits down next to him, and Hedekin just reaches out his right hand and says, it was a pleasure to play with you this year. And I just thought that was the neatest little moment between teammates that you usually don't get you to don't see. see. And so that's, that's up here, and that's the gratification I took out of that. But to be around that was, you know, when I was 10 years old, my Boston Bruins won the Stanley Cup on yeah. Mother's Day, 1970. So that was life coming full circle. 46 years later, 36 years later. Um, but that was pretty cool to be in the building and hear how loud it was in the building and then to see them celebrate. I mean, they had worked hard that year. They were a fun team to watch. If you remember, they had come back off a lockout year. Mm-hmm. And the thing I loved about it was that they opened the game back up because for 20 years, hockey was awful. And the officials started calling all the obstruction penalties, holding, hooking, interference. And now there was... That's what I love about the game is that it's flow. Up and down the ice, there's nothing better than that. And did you ever have like a, I mean, obviously your Boston roots, so you had mm-hmm. those as your teams that you followed, mm-hmm. but 
later on? I mean, did you still continue to follow the Boston teams, or did you still have a Red other Sox? Teams? Still a Red Sox fan, and probably switched there. I, I can't watch the NBA anymore. And Why not? I, I used to love the Celtics and love the NBA because the Celtics I grew up with ran. Now they don't run anymore. They walk the ball up and they <laughs> you know, ISO with four guys on one side and you know set triple screens for someone to jack a three. It's like not what I like to watch. And college basketball, in my opinion, which used to be much better, is becoming more and more like the NBA every day. And it's become harder to watch. Um, I'm, you know, I, I think I had all the fandom almost sucked out of me. Um, and why is that? Because you're, you have to be objective you have to be so when you're objective. in the business. Right. Um, and you appreciate what everybody does, and you don't hate teams like you did, except for the Yankees, maybe. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, I'm, I'm actually, I think, a diehard Carolina Hurricanes fan. I have become. And it's funny because I used to love the Bruins. And when they played last year, I went to one of the playoff games. And, um, and yeah, I can feel I'm, I'm a Hurricanes fan. I love my Boston people, but you know, I've been here now 31 years. Who knew? That's right. I mean, you're now a, longer than half my life. A transplant that has really become we call us planted damn, in. Damn Yankees. We came and stayed. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then football. Probably more of a Panthers fan than Patriots. Although I like watching the Patriots play. I, well, this year they've been kind of ugly to watch, but yeah, they still I mean, win. Yeah, I mean, the way their offense played was fun to watch when Brady was at his best, which was what thirty years worth, you know, twenty years of of really good football. Who's the greatest athlete you've watched? Does it include film? Because I think I'd go with you know, if you go all time, it'd be one of my Syracuse guys. Jim Brown might be the best athlete who ever lived. That's a hard one to beat. There's a photo, a black and white photo of him with a lacrosse stick, and they say he was the best lacrosse player who ever lived. So he was best at that sport. You could make an argument he was the best football player who ever played the game. He ran track as well and was good. And he wrestled or played basketball. I mean, he was, you know, like Jim Thorpe. You put him in the same category. As far as athletes that I've seen in person, Maybe Michael Jordan, but I, you know, if you were to ask me what sport has the best athletes, it's hockey. I mean, imagine having to skate full speed for forty-five seconds while being hit, and and have the hand-eye coordination with puck. It is amazing, um, but unfortunately, hockey just doesn't get the same type of exposure. Well, obviously, because of well, it's I, I think it's you know now that there are Sun Belt teams in the league, and you're starting to see kids from Sun Belt cities make it to the NHL. Um, Gradual, but I think you know you made the comment going there live to see it. You like it. I grew up watching it on TV, so I have the mind's eye for the puck. People say I can't see the puck. It's like, well, I don't think most people can. That's right. But I think <laughs> it's you, way you, you, too you fast on TV. I mean, based on which way the camera's going, you know where the puck is. Um, and so that you know, a good hockey game on TV, I will still, you still get watch. juiced. Yeah. Okay. So, what about teaching? How much do you enjoy that? Love it. Love it. Uh, the grading part, you know. <laughs> you can uh, do it out, right? <laughs> you know, I, I decided early on, I said, have, having, and it's one of, the, one of the nice things to see about the schools who will not require you to have a master's or PhD to teach, that you actually come from the industry and know what you're talking about because you've done it for 24 years. Um, I wasn't going to give tests or quizzes because it's not important. On how you how you, you memorize. Perform. I mean, yeah, it's performance. So I've done a couple of pa- short papers, but performance projects, play by play, two minutes, um, two minute reporter package, two minutes of anchoring sportscast, and then my final is an in class sports talk show where I'll break them into groups of three or four. They're the show. They each do a one minute rant and then ten minute <laughs> show, and then they take calls from the rest of the class. And that worked. I, I pulled that out of midair at High Point University five years ago, and it worked and it so well. I've done it. I mean, it teaches you how to think on your feet, how to ad lib, how to communicate your ideas. And and most of those kids are not going to be sportscasters. So it's a sportscasting class, but it's a fun way, in my opinion, to learn how to be a confident and effective communicator. That's a good point. So, what do you think makes a good sports talk show? What are the components? Um, probably conflict, um, opinions, 
strong opinions. Um, Whether right or wrong, you don't and, have to necessarily be right. You just you, have to have an opinion. You know, I've, I've, I've filled in on talk shows before, but I've never done one. And, and I wonder if I could do it because I sometimes think of myself as someone who doesn't necessarily have strong opinions because I don't think I ever know enough to make a definitive opinion, if that makes any sense. <laughs> it does. I mean, I, I feel like there's Because to have always... an opinion, sometimes you have to be confident with the information right. itself. Correct. I mean, I, I don't know that I'm I'm ever educated enough on something, which I'm, I'm probably not totally telling the truth there because I, I probably get to a point where I'm comfortable enough. But, I mean, as we've seen with you know fake news, fake video, you can be fooled by an awful lot. You sure can. So... What about when you're in the class? Do you give words of wisdom? I'm big on you know words of wisdom. Any mottos, quotes, phrases, or just life advice that you share? Well, in, in this business, and, and you know, ultimately you're trying to make them confident and effective, but also to get them jobs when they get out. So, the semester I taught at High Point University, I had back-to-back um, guest lecturers. And one of the things I felt strongly about was I wanted to expose them to all the different facets of sports casting. So I brought, I would bring in a decent number of people to come and talk to them about whether it was a television news director. Here's what I look like when I hire a sports person, um, a reporter, a play-by-play person, a color commentator. These are this is what I do. This is what I do. This is what I look for from. Uh, I had the. We get teacher evaluations when the class is over from anonymous students. And after my first class at Wake, one of the <laughs> evaluations said, he doesn't teach the class, he just has other people come to it for him. <laughs> hey, you're a great facilitator. <laughs> so we had 16 classes. We had eight guest lecturers, none of whom went more than an hour in the two-and-a-half-hour class. Okay, I get it. <laughs> um, but all feedback is helpful. So anyway, at High Point, I had uh, Tom Wormy from ACC Network or Fox Sports, and Anish Shroff, who does play-by-play for ESPN, came in on consecutive weeks, and they both spit out the same mantra. And we'd always heard the first two parts from our parents, which used to drive me crazy. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Oh, yes, they, I know that. They took it one step further. It's not what you know, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. So the idea there being is you go do an internship, you show what you can do, and then when maybe if that person has a job open one day, they'll say, I know. That's right. Because they, they showed what they could do. Because they know you. But that's all, you know, that is a step higher in the hiring process is they have to know who you are. So that's kind of my, my mantra. So is that your mantra now? Um, that's one of them, yeah. And, and it goes, I had uh, someone interview me um, He's Canadian and does a sports blog, sports media blog. And it is read, 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 because all of your writing is informed by what you've read. Write, 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 because the more you write, the better writer you'll become. And third one is network your ass off. (laughs) I mean, I I used to be, believe it or not, the shyest kid. I mean, I was afraid to talk to people. it would be hard to be right, correct. in your and that's, prob- that's probably why it took me so long to get into the business, because I was afraid of saying, hey, could I have a job? Um, but you, you know, as I've learned and gotten older, I mean, so many people are willing to help you, um, at least talk to you, give you pointers that the more people... I had a pr- professor my senior year in college who said, here's how it works. And this is you know, pre-computer days, obviously. Call somebody up who you think you know, might have a job or can lead you in the right direction. Would you have 20 minutes to sit down and do an informational interview? And do that, and then at the end say, can you recommend three more names of people who would do the same thing? And that's how you build your network. Mm-hmm. Now it's so easy because you have <laughs> LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. So you many know, different ways to connect. I mean, online, and you can start there. I mean, I have a ridiculous number of, I'm almost embarrassed, the number of LinkedIn connections. But I've used that to help, try to help NSMA. I I started really using it when I was out of work before I took this job. 
And then I started sending connection requests to people in sports media, sports marketing, and have continued that. So now I'm over 16,000. Wow. Um, are most of them going to be helpful? Will I even contact them? Probably not. But there will be some, and I tell my students and any interested student or anyone who comes here for our um, Sports Media Convergence Summit in the summer, go on my LinkedIn page, send me a connection request, I'll say yes, and then pick off, look, look at who my connections are, and then start that network. And you'd be amazed that somewhere down the line it'll work. I'm, I've become friends with people I met on LinkedIn who I've stayed in touch with, who have come to our awards weekend, and that's how I met them. Yeah, and it is all about networking because I have found out too, people like helping other people. The vast majority of people, I mean, there are very few people who have said no. Yeah, because at some point somebody helped them. you or right. helped them, right? right? Absolutely. I mean, if I hadn't, if I hadn't uh, interned when I was in college and learned my way around and, um, you know, when I volunteered at the NBC station in Providence. By the way, the guy, the guy that I volunteered with, is his name is Jack Edwards. He's the television play-by-play -play voice of the Boston Bruins now and has been for 15 years or 20 years. Um, so you'll never, you never know, know where people are going to end up. That's right. And, you, I mean, you'll have people... I have people who email me or get in touch on one of the other outlets. You know, I'm so frustrated. I can't get in. I can't get that one job. And then all of a sudden, I'll get that one job. And next thing again. you know, they're off. Yeah. I mean, people who interned for me who went to CNN, Voice of the Arizona Diamondbacks on TV. One's a sports anchor in Cleveland. I mean... You just never know. That's right. Well, you just never know now that you've been a guest on Rich Take on Sports. <laughs> Watch out, right? <laughs> you just, you never know. You never know who's listening or watching or, or is stalking you online. Exactly. That's right. It's like, I, don't, I don't call it stalking. I call it investigative journalism. I like that. Yes. Go back to your reporting roots. Yeah. Beautiful. Dave, thank you so much. Rich, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime. While technology continues to rapidly change how we communicate and tell stories, the importance of continuing to read and write will always be fundamental in order to craft your skills. And as Dave mentioned, the only true way to get to a point where you're in a position that not only do you know others, but where they know who you are is by networking your ass off, regardless of your platform. Now that finishes episode 129, and more of our conversations can be found on your preferred podcasting platform. And you can also watch some of our episodes by visiting our Rich Take on Sports YouTube channel, where you can easily subscribe. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.